Hello and welcome to the Salomon Podcast with me, Sam Wilkin. This time I'm speaking to Diana Rogers of Sustainable Dish. Diana is a nutritionist by trade and an organic farmer on a regenerative farm just outside of uh, Boston. Uh, Diana's also written a book called Sacred Cow, uh, which puts forward the argument for balanced regenerative agriculture and in particular the role of beef and dairy within that model. Uh, we cover a lot of topics, uh, predominantly um, sustainable agricultural systems. We look to the future, and I just, uh, yeah, I think I think uh, she's she's just a really interesting, really uh, uh, eloquent speaker on the subject. Her book's available from July the fourteenth. Uh, there's also a film that goes with the book uh, that's definitely worth checking out. Real eye opener, uh, and definitely put things in a way that is just very clear it's real clarity to the argument and very very compelling um uh, i think you should check it out anyway here she is diana rogers for the settlement podcast i think that now is the perfect time for us to be reassessing everything and that's what people are doing at least in the united states um all of the farmers that i know that sell direct to customers that don't go through industrial channels and wholesalers and you know through through those markets are booming. We, um, we're sold out for the whole rest of the year already um, with everything we have and, um, and, and all of the other meat and vegetable producers that I know that sell direct to consumers are, are, are that way as well. I think people are really concerned about their, where their food comes from. They're spending more time in the kitchen, which is amazing. People are cooking more from home than ever before. And, um, you know, as a nutritionist, I'm really excited about that as well, because yeah, sure. I want more people eating home cooked meals. I don't know. I think it's an interesting idea that seems to be developing is that there's all, there's always been particularly in kind of, you know, in inverted commas, foodie circles, there's that kind of bubble where if you're privileged enough to be exposed to the kind of food that I work with every day, you know is this idea of provenance of local and and you know there's almost a mantra to it but i think the way that we live now and the you know even down to the fact that i'm sitting here in my terraced house in east london you know it's sort of the sun's going down you're you're sat just outside boston and you know we're having this conversation quite clearly is this idea of what is local you know how can i support for example a patrick holden have a cheddar you know in wales by buying his product can i support not just him directly but also the people who work on his farm the people who deal with deliveries there's almost this kind of you know local is no longer confined to an idea of geography it's almost an idea of supporting a local community somewhere and i don't know what your take on that is yeah, I mean, I think that it's really important to do that. And I think that there are opportunities for smaller food hubs to happen where, you know, maybe all the producers in Wales get together and have a centralized hub and and then distribute to, to the stores from there. Um, when I was talking with James Rebanks um, up in the Lake District, uh, he was explaining how um, the the sheep there, it, it takes, I believe he said it was one acre per sheep, which is um, about half the rate of what we have here in New England. Um, we have uh, two sheep per acre is what we can support on the pastures around here. So that's a massive difference when you think about all the labor that goes into raising a sheep. And, um, you know, uh, James doesn't want to have to compete with, you know, X external lamb, right? Like it's not fair for him to then have to, you know, set a fair price that will support his family, but yet 
um, you know, if if England is is importing sheep from uh, Montana or other places that can raise it much more cheaply, that's actually hurting hurting the whole rural economy of England. And so that's a really interesting point, I think, and and very relevant right now. I don't know how much uh, you know of the you know. I imagine the news in the states is there's a lot going on, so I don't know how much the UK news reaches you. But oh my God, no, we never hear about the UK. (laughs) (laughs) I mean, I listen to the BBC um, on my local um, public radio station because it switches to the BBC at nine a.m. But we on TV news, you never hear about anywhere other than the US. Well, to be honest, I think a lot's going through Parliament at the moment that you don't really hear about in the UK because they're finding ways to dominate the airwaves. You know, it's uh, interesting times, shall we say. Anyway, the thing that, that is particularly pertinent to what we're talking about is um, an amendment to the agricultural bill that essentially allows, through trade deals with the states post-Brexit, that there is going to be no protection uh, for food standards. So, you know, the big headline product over here that hits the front of all our tabloid papers is, you know, chick bleached chicken. There's this sort of, you know, horror, horror show idea. But, you know, that's the headline. But there's all sorts of other things in terms of, you know, animal welfare and, you know, hormones and all these other things that actually aren't, you know, they're illegal in the UK. But if this trade deal is struck the way it looks like it's going to be, there's going to be a flood of products that are just unreachably cheap. You know, we, we will not be able to compete. But something, a friend of mine, Mary Quick, who runs Quick's Cheddar, um, she was saying that her friends in the agricultural community in America were saying, well, even if we had to conform to those specific, you know, requirements, because we're sort of such a well-oiled agricultural machine, we would still be able to do it cheaper. I'd be interested to know what you as, as a member of the American agricultural community would say to that? I mean, we're having the same issues here. Um, we, uh, meat from outside of the US, it can be technically labeled as product of the United States if it's cut here, right? So we can get a carcass from Australia and as long as it's cut here or somehow processed here, it can be stamped with a, with a made in the USA stamp. Um, and so there's, we have our own legislation going on. It's called the Cool, the cool Act Country of Origin Labeling, um, just so that consumers are able to make the choice, the intelligent choice. So all of our produce that comes in, um, it has to have a sticker on it for the, the country of origin, but somehow um, meat does not have that same standard and um, it's very wrong. And so I think that, um, People deserve to have in, as much information as as they should, right? I mean, people need to be able to make choices. And if if you love the the English countryside and the folks who are rich and, and live in the cities, but then have a country house out there, it's not going to be a country anymore. There's if we if you don't support the people who make their living off the land. But do you think it's those folks that live in the cities with all the money that actually, uh, because if that, 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 those goods that are imported, even if they are labeled as say, you know, produce of Australia or produce in our of say, you know, grown in Texas or whatever, uh, actually the way people buy and the way people vote is with their wallet. And so how do we, how do, you know, you and I, I think we work in a, we're, we're privileged to work in a, in an area of our industry that is arguably a little rarefied. 
in that, it, you know, we are selling products to people who can afford to think about provenance, can afford to, you know, eat the finer things, if you like. How do we solve the problem of very cheap imported goods, perhaps made to standards that we are not entirely comfortable with, that threaten the livelihoods of, say, British producers or, or as you're saying, American producers? How, how do we actually reach out to those people other than through price and is that possible it's a really tough thing because as a public health nutritionist this is where it's a little tricky for me because there's a lot of underprivileged people that deserve to just eat nutrient-dense food right um and so the idea that you know they might have access to less expensive nutrient-dense food is a good thing Right. Um, but at the same time, there are things that can be done on a policy level to help uh, protect the countryside and the, the lives of the rural people there um, while um, helping underprivileged people in the same country be able to access that food. And so I think there needs to be some really deep thought put behind that, but there needs to be somebody who cares first to put that forward. And so if your administration doesn't care, um, that's a huge problem. And I, I don't know how to get around that. No, that's yeah, I think that's going to be a challenge, certainly over here for some time. So let's go back to your to your book. It, it, it's so I sort of found myself I, the, the nutrition area is is genuinely fascinating. And I didn't, you know, I was unaware of a lot of it. I think I think the, air, the the particular section that really rang bells with me, though, that really struck home was was that the idea of of sustainable regenerative agriculture. So it's not, you know, those two words are quite they're quite different, really. There's this idea of sustaining something, but then regenerative, this kind of giving back and and renewing, and and this idea that this this cycle is is just self perpetuating forever and ever and ever. It's like almost a closed circle that we we are privileged enough to sort of pick from, if you like. How how do you see that becoming a, a sort of normal practice? Do you see that becoming normal practice? I'd, I'd like to back up for those of us who are not in the millennial age group and just mention that the original intent behind the organics movement in the 70s and, and the sustainability movement, you know, later on in the 90s, that was the intent. So it's it's not like we're doing better than the farmers who decided that they were going to be organic or sustainable. It's just, uh, unfortunately, those labels have been co-opted by big businesses who have figured out how to make organic efficient. Well, they've made it, they've made it certifiable as well, haven't they? Which I think is the big thing. Right. And so, but, but I mean, Patrick Holden and, and folks like him and, and all the leaders here in the U S um, that's the idea, right. Is to work with nature to um, improve the land and to grow healthy food, right? And so um, sometimes when I'm at these conferences and I hear uh, younger people talking about, you know, well, regenerative is the new thing and it, ha you know, organic isn't enough. And I, I just don't, I want to be careful not to insult the pioneers of organic because that's, well, for sure. And to acknowledge that actually my, you know, my, well, I, I call them my grandparents. They're not actually, they're not my blood relations, but, the, you know, they had a big part in getting me into this whole world. 
the way they live is exactly that. It is exactly regenerative. Their small sort of small holding that they have, it's, you know, various different animals, it's different vegetables, it's fruit trees, it's it's exactly what you describe in your book. You know, so it's not a, a new idea. I suppose the marketing behind it now is is, is new and, and I, I just I see people co opting this um idea or or also young people saying well we we've discovered it it's it's regenerative and that's we're the future but that's the prerogative of every generation i expect my children to say exactly the same thing to me you know, now i'm 46 and and so i just i'm getting a little i'm getting a little cynical <laughs> fair enough those young people out there thinking they're changing the world bah, you know but um, anyhow, <laughs> the whole idea behind these terms and the intention originally behind organic and sustainable is that we need to be working with nature. We need to be not using chemical fertilizers and we need to, um, you know, very importantly, we need to be incorporating animals with our vegetable production and not separating them. Um, and uh, when you watch the film, you'll see that that's the part that Patrick Holden is actually talking about in the film is that once we separated um, and specialized, um, that was sort of a, the, the beginning of our downfall. And um, what we need are, you know, smaller scale farms that are actually highly diversified and, um, and incorporate animals with the vegetables. Um, you know, just just like you might imagine a farm back in the 1700s. And in the same way that that farm back in the 1700s would be, uh, you know, would be supplying a more local community or, or, or are we sort of tying that in with kind of modern logistics and... Yeah, I mean, I, I think we totally can. I think there's a... I'm not anti-technology. I'm certainly not a Luddite. And, um, you know, there's things like electric fencing that we utilize here on the farm that makes it possible for us to cheaply and efficiently move our animals all over the farm. And so we don't have to set up constant, you know, paddocks and, and, and use all kinds of labor and resources to build fencing everywhere all over the farm. We can just pick it up and move it and charge it on a solar panel and, and, and that's great. Um, and so I think there's ways of aggregating local, local foods. And, and I'm seeing this happen more and more in, in the U S where, um, uh, meat companies are sort of supplying regional, um, you know, sourcing from regional areas and then distributing regionally. So there's a regional hub, um, but it's, uh, it, so it doesn't necessarily have to be, you know, five miles up the street. I think um, if we broaden our definition and use um, smart, you know, aggregating technologies, um, you know, the web is great for that as well, um, getting people to be more aware of, of their choices, placing orders online, um, so all of that is great. So I think we have to sort of, you know, work with nature, but then, you know, take the best pieces of technology and apply that to um, what makes the most sense. I mean, what I, what I get nervous about is the idea that we can grow all meat in labs and that's the future because that's happening here in Silicon Valley. Um, and there's a lot of money being invested in the idea of lab meats or these fake meat products that uh, there's absolutely nothing organic, sustainable or regenerative about them at all, but yet they're marketed as, as that. Do you think there's an element of science? I mean, it is, that is happening, but there's something about that that appeals, I think, in a weird way. It's that kind of science fiction promise of the future, kind of post-apocalyptic, almost, you know, Margaret Atwood kind of... 
totally uh, 100 percent. i am with you 100 percent on that one i mean i just you know reading about it in your book you know the idea that that again that it's this it's this miracle food it's so easy to just this miracle food is being created you know silicon valley that place where they do all the stuff that is so incredibly complicated you wouldn't understand so we won't go into the details we'll just tell you it's a miracle food but actually when you investigate it it, it's the energy the time you know all of the things that go into making this stuff you know we have joel salatin who's sort of a celebrity farmer here in the u.s mocking mocking it in the film saying you know it's like it's like i made something out of nothing i've got this cylinder and out comes the impossible burger you know um and but they're not talking about all of the inputs um that have to go into that all of the processing all of the energy you know no one's really taking all of that into account they're just focused on this miraculous um product that's this biological goo that that is coming out the other end i feel like those sort of products i've kind of had their day i think the whole i think it's really interesting the v, the vegan movement if you can call it that it, it, it is is an interesting concept although they wouldn't necessarily agree with the impossible burger either to be fair um but this idea that that there's an, an increased engagement with food whether you're a vegan or you're you're a carnivore like myself or whatever however you eat there is an increased engagement with what what we put into our bodies but but people are do, do you find that people are incredibly selective about what they engage with people are highly polarized um politically here um culturally we've got the rural and the urban right and the the urban elites are making the decisions and you know those dumb rural people um don't know what they're talking about kind of thing and um it's very dangerous and so um, we've, we've lost that with diet too. There's just no moderation, um, when it comes to, you know, just choosing real food, it's, it's gotta be, um, you know, vegan all the way or, or fruititarian or something like that. And there's just no room for nuance. And, um, what we say in the film, in the book is that, you know, clearly there are some people that, um, you know, seem to do okay on a vegan diet. We, we don't think that, you know, as omnivores, it's ideal to, to be a vegan. There's a lot of careful planning and supplementation you need. Um, and, uh, but we also aren't preaching. So we're not telling people that they have to eat our way. Um, that's, that's where things get really problematic for me is where, um, you know, we have folks that are demanding that their moral framework then be applied to every other person in the world. And that's not okay. And then you, then you actually engage and you go, Oh, what's that product that you're eating there? Well, where's that from? And where are your, you know, where are you getting your cashew nuts from? Oh, uh, you know, the Philippines and you go, okay, so, but, but, but where, and, and how are they grown and how do they get here? And, you know, so I don't know, it just, I find it very frustrating. Let's look at, things like chocolate. So, so most of the chocolate that's on the markets today um, from, uh, from African sources is the product of human trafficking and slave labor, um, child labor. Um, is that least harm? Is that okay to be vegan because children were harmed, but not animals? Um, so, you know, and are children animals because humans are? Um, so, you know, I just really question, um, you know, if I can raise a cow on grass and increased biodiversity, ecosystem function, it attracted birds um, and prevented the extinction of pollinators, um, is that really that bad compared to what we're seeing in the industrial monocrop system where 
Um, we're losing habitat. We're losing um, pollinators, especially bees, and um, and the repercussions of that are massive. And so, I don't necessarily think that any diet can be a bloodless diet or a death-free diet. It's just a matter of are you going to accept it and take responsibility for it or not. Well, no, I mean, and and uh, I was given the example, just a very simple one, you know. Um, that the, the idea of, of harvesting a field without shedding blood is is impossible you know that just the, the life in a field of corn say you know from the you know the field mice and the pheasants and the, all sorts of things that will almost certainly get mowed down by the combine harvester the idea that 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 kind of vegan product that you're eating is 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 bloodless is is, is actually impossible you know it's impossible in a way for there not to be some kind of harm for another species to profit it it almost doesn't work like that so i think i find the ethics a very very almost dangerous area to head into because i feel like you lose sight of the the simple benefits of 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 the what you're talking about it is just an is a net positive you know it is a net positive in in a very in simple scientific terms it's a net positive let alone the gray area of ethics right and that that's why i refuse to have an ethical conversation with an ethical vegan because um if they don't have an understanding from a public health perspective of the role of animal products to humans if they don't understand the the privilege that they're that they have to be pushing away nutrient dense food and demanding people who would you know, are very hungry who would, who would love to have that food and you're telling them they can't. I mean, that's, that's, uh, I don't think that that's very ethical, but also then, um, if, if they have no understanding, if they've never worked on a farm or even been to a farm, um, I, I can't engage because, um, you need to deeply understand all of these things in order to have a proper, a proper, um, ethical discussion. And, and in the beginning of the book, we actually are very clear who is this for, and we did not write the book to sway vegans. Um, but I have to say there are a lot of, I mean, my practice and my followers almost, you know, a very large percent of them is, um, uh, an ex-vegan or an ex-vegetarian who, um, you know, someone who thought really deeply about their food choices, um, you know, took it too far, their health suffered, and then they had to, you know, r- ratchet it back because basically uh, what I recommend eating is 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 basically a well-planned vegan diet plus meat. So let's talk about the future. You create, you paint a really sort of evocative image of, of this planet that pops up on the polar opposite side of the sun from us, if I can use polar opposite to talk about the sun, um, grass world. It's, it's there to kind of, you know, illustrate the point about a complex, a complex system and how that is the best way to, to do it. Um, but it, it does it very kind of eloquently. And, and I was wondering in, on that kind of vein of, as you know science fiction if you like what does the future look like what what would you if you could design a world from what we have now to where you would like to be um maybe in a hundred lifetimes or whatever what would that world look like that's a great question i'd like to see people be a little less specialized and a little more generalized um i'd like people to stop thinking too much uh, as much as they do in silos um I mean, specialization allows us to have skyscrapers and, you know, really smart engineers and mathematicians that can do amazing things. And, and, and maybe we need some of 
those folks. But I think we need a lot more generalists out there who, um, like for example, I can build a table, I can start a fire, I can kill a chicken, <laughs> um, I can paint. I, like I just, I think that we need a lot more people that, that can do stuff, like real things. Um, I think we need to celebrate you know, these, these trades of, of, you know, being able to actually work with your hands. I think that, um, you know, as we see more automation that's going to be happening with um, robotic harvesting of, of raspberries, they can now harvest raspberries with a robot. And so as we see that, we're going to see, we're going to see a lot more people out of jobs. And, you know, I think what people are going to, gardening is the number one pastime of humans, um, at least in America. And so if we have everyone growing, you know, a little patch of tomatoes and cucumbers and everything, but then maybe there's some kind of aggregator, like an Uber car that would go around, pick them all up, bring them to a central distribution site. And then, you know, the people who don't have tomatoes can order a tomato. So there we are. That was Diana Rogers of sustainabledish.com. Uh, follow them on Instagram and Twitter at Sustainable Dish. Uh, loads of really interesting stuff. Those are really good infographics that tell the story of regenerative farming really well, really clearly. Uh, thoroughly recommend it. See you next time for the Selimon Podcast. The Selimon Podcast is produced by me, Sam Wilkin. If you want to know more about Selimon, go to Selimon Sam on Instagram and Twitter or check out the website selimon.co.uk.